We are continuing our series in the book of Genesis today, so I do want to encourage you uh, at home to grab your Bible and to make your way to Genesis chapter 21. We're continuing our series in the book of Genesis. The series is called Between Promise and Fulfillment, and we are exploring the life of Abraham as it is recorded for us in chapters 12 to 25 in the book of Genesis You know, I'm encouraged every week as I get to spend time in God's Word studying for uh, the message that I will deliver on a Sunday. But I would say this week, uh, I just found a great feast in God's Word, and I'm excited to be able to share that with you this morning. My hope is that after we're done today, you will have a greater appreciation or a greater sense of the richness that is found in God's Word. And even more than that, that you'll have a deeper appreciation for the grace that we find in God. So we're in Genesis chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 21 of Genesis 21. This is God's word and this is what it says. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah had bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham, Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abram, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And this thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman and also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Well, I want to draw your attention to two main truths this morning. 
One about God's promises and one about our messes. So let me start with what we learn about God's promises. And what we learn is that God keeps his promises. Now that point will hardly come as a surprise to you. I mean, it's been one of our themes throughout the series. The series is called Between Promise and Fulfillment. We've spent a lot of time on the between part of that equation, that we live in between promise and fulfillment. We live in the tension of the already and the not yet. We've also talked quite a bit about the promise part of the equation, that Abraham left his homeland and his family and set out for an unknown destination armed only with the promise or the promises of God. We began our series back in chapter 12, and chapter 12 begins like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The central promise in God's call to Abraham was that he will make him into a great nation. And the tension that runs all the way from the beginning of Genesis chapter 12 all the way up until this point is the fact that Abraham and Sarah don't have any children. As time passes, Abraham wants to know how he could be the father of a great nation when he has no children, no offspring. So God appears to him on multiple occasions to assure him that this promise will, in fact, come to fruition. In chapter 15, we read this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. See, as Abraham was going along, he does the math, and he knows, I don't have a son. How can I be the father of a nation? But God shows up to assure him this promise will come to pass. In chapter 17, God appears to Abraham again, and he promises that he will be a father to many nations. And the promise gets more and more specific as time goes on. And so when we come to chapter 18, we read this, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. The fulfillment was getting closer, but at that point it was still just a promise. Would God deliver? Well, Abraham was 75 years old when he first received the promise of God. He's now 100 years old at the time of its fulfillment. And ever since we first read this verse all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, where it says, now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Ever since we read that, we've been waiting for this moment to arrive. We've been waiting for the good news of verses 1 and 2. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. God keeps his promises. 
We can have confidence that when he says he's going to do something, he will do it. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, if it were not so, I would have told you. We can have confidence in that. So what is it that we're supposed to take away from this truth that God always keeps his promises? Well, there are lots of things, but I can think of two implications that flow directly out of this passage. The first one is that this should lead us or this should lead to obedience and praise. Verses 3 and 4 show us the immediacy of Abraham's obedience once God fulfills his promise. It says, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac, and Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Now, we're going to see more of Abraham's obedience in the next chapter But we see it right away here. It was back in chapter 17 that God gave Abraham a very specific command when he entered into a covenant with him. This is what God said. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. And so the moment Abraham experiences the fulfillment of God's commandment or God's promise, he is ready to do whatever God asks. That's the nature of obedience. God commands and we do, and we do what he commands. Verses 6 and 7 help us understand the praise part of this. Abraham and Sarah named their son Isaac. The name Isaac means laughter. And here's the explanation that Sarah gives for that name in verses 6 and 7. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, naming a child was an important act in the ancient world. It still is in lots of ways. I mean, this is why parents sometimes agonize over their decision. What shall we name our son or our daughter? I mean, you know, you want to pick a good, solid name for your child. Maybe you want to pick a name that, you know, can't be made fun of as they grow up. Maybe you want to pick a name that has some connection or association with with family in some way. Maybe you pick a name because you want to avoid the association of, you know, someone you knew in high school or someone you knew in your workplace. Or maybe you're just one of those really cool parents and you want to pick a a unique name for your son or daughter. I saw just this week that Elon Musk named his baby XAEA12. The A-E is apparently from the Elvish language. I didn't even know there was actually such a thing. So whatever. But just, just think about naming in relation to Isaac. What Sarah knows is that naming her son Isaac, laughter, is bound to produce curiosity. Why did you name your son Isaac? Why did you call him laughter? And she could say, let me tell you a story. This is what God has done for me. 
Now, I'm not saying that the application of that is that you need to give your baby or your yacht like a really cool name. What I'm saying is that when we tell our stories, when we describe the events of our lives, we ought to do it in such a way that makes it clear that we are not the heroes of our story. So I've been watching The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary lately. Michael Jordan was the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Sorry, there's no disputing that. Sorry, LeBron. Michael Jordan was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2009, and he was inducted on the same day as David Robinson. Now, you might not be as familiar with the name David Robinson. Robinson played his entire career with the San Antonio Spurs. He was a 10-time All-Star. He was an MVP. He won two NBA titles. David Robinson was a great player. Not quite the player Michael Jordan was, but a great player nonetheless. A Hall of Famer. But I think the biggest contrast between Michael Jordan and David Robinson wasn't shown on the basketball court. The biggest contrast was shown or revealed in their Hall of Fame induction speeches on the night they gave them. Michael Jordan's 23-minute speech contained a total of six thank yous. Most of them a sort of thank you for not believing in me because it gave me the motivation I needed. David Robinson's speech was just the opposite. In that seven-minute speech, he offered 17 thank yous. Thank you to everyone who helped shape his life. And then he gave a concluding reflection on the story from Luke chapter 17, where Jesus heals 10 lepers, but only one of them came back to thank him. See, that's what it looks like to tell your story in a way that leads to praise, not of yourself, but of God. And you don't need to have the platform of an NBA player to do that. The Apostle Paul asked this question of his Corinthian audience. He said, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? See, when we acknowledge that everything we have is a gift from the gracious hand of God, we are telling people that we're not the heroes of our story. God is. He's the one who has blessed us with this. Second thing, the knowledge that God will always keep his promises should do for us is that this should fill us with confidence. Now, you're going to have to wait a week to see what this looks like in practice. But when we turn the page and read chapter 22, we meet a very different Abraham than the one we've met in our story so far. Abraham is transformed from one who hedges his bets and seeks self-preservation above all else to one who obeys with complete abandon. One who is filled with confidence that God can do the impossible. So where did that confidence come from? Well, it came from a lifetime of seeing God fulfill and make good on his promises. Commenting on the birth of Isaac, Dale Ralph Davis makes this great observation. He said, if God begins his people in this world by such an impossible act... It means there is something supernatural about them. And therefore it means that nothing and no one will ever be able to overcome or overthrow or annihilate this people. 
Now, I don't know if kids still do this, but when, when I was young, we used to play all sorts of neighborhood games. And a lot of those games, especially among the boys, involved the pretend shooting of each other, right? We would play games like cops and robbers. And, you know, you would hope to catch someone kind of running around the corner and you would point your finger at them and say, bang, bang. But there was always that one kid who refused to die, right? I mean, he would say something like, oh, I'm tight bones. Your bullets don't hurt me. Apparently his body was constructed, his bones were, you know, so tightly compressed together that no matter what you fired at him, he was indestructible. A modern day comparison might be a Marvel character. I mean, they never die, right? God's people are like that. God begins his people through miraculous means, through a hundred-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman, And the only explanation for the continuation of God's people in the midst of all manner of opposition is God's supernatural preservation of them. You can see the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham all through history. God always finishes what he starts. And if he brought this people about, he will continue them to the end. This is something... We need to understand as Christians, both individually and collectively. Individually, we need to understand that the one who brought us into a relationship with him is not going to let us go or lose us. We don't get into a relationship with God through grace and then the rest is just sort of left up to us. Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, God will bring to completion what he has started. Jesus said it like this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Look, if it were left up to me, I would never make it to the end. But my confidence doesn't come because of my grip on God but because of his grip on me. The fact that God always keeps his promises ought to fill us with confidence collectively as well. Now, we're in the midst of a crazy season right now. And as we try to think about what changes the future might bring in terms of things like travel or the economy or church gatherings, the best answer we can give to so many of those questions is, I don't know. But there are some things we do know. See, I might be bearish on the stock market right now, but I am always bullish on the church. Jesus said that he would build his church and that not even the gates of hell could prevail against it. This is his promise to us. The church has not only survived, but thrived in the midst of persecution and opposition. It is outlasted empires and cultures and kingdoms. God's people were brought into existence miraculously and they will be sustained the same way. God always finishes what he starts. So Christians ought to be the most optimistic people in the world. God keeps his promises. Second main thing we see in this passage 
is that God is able to sort out the complicated mess of our lives. I mean, this story's a mess, isn't it? In one sense, we weren't prepared for the mess. I mean, we've been waiting and waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise. Everything has been building towards this moment, towards the arrival of the child of promise. 25 years, Abraham and Sarah have been waiting. We've been waiting. Child of promise is finally born. And if this were a fairy tale... The story would have ended right here with the line, and they lived happily ever after. But the Bible is not a fairy tale. And we get to celebrate Isaac's birth for about two verses, and then verses 8 and 9 hit us with this. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Our best guess is that children were weaned at about the age of three at this time. So Abraham throws a party to celebrate, but the son of laughter is met with a different kind of laughter. Ishmael, Abraham's son, with his maidservant Hagar, is not happy about being displaced by Isaac. And Ishmael's laugh is the laugh of mockery. He is his disdain for Isaac. Now, as a mom, and moms, you can relate to this. Sarah sees the threat from a mile away, right? She knows the current living arrangement will not work. And in effect, she issues an ultimatum to Abraham in verse 10. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. It's a complicated mess. Now, the book hadn't been written yet, but I'm sure Abraham would have been able to identify with the opening line of a tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I mean, the child he had been waiting for had finally arrived. Infant mortality rates were high in the ancient world, and so making it to your third birthday was a sign that you're out of the danger zone. So Abraham throws a party, but the good times don't last. And the party reveals that this was not one big happy family. It was a complicated mess. Now, I want to highlight two things that we learn from the complicated mess we see here. The first is that sorting out the mess doesn't mean the absence of pain or conflict. You know, there's a lot of pain and conflict here. There's conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael sees Isaac as a threat. He's going to take his privileged place in the family. There's conflict between Sarah and Ishmael. She sees that look in his eyes and she knows he has to go. There's conflict between Sarah and Abraham. Look, I don't care what you do, Abraham. You get that slave woman and her son out of here. Now, you may have experience with this in your own family. Conflict like that. There's often pain and conflict in the midst of a family. 
I find the whole episode to be fascinating, partly because of the realism of it. I mean, there's no waving of a magic wand to just kind of make everything better. But part of what fascinates me is the pragmatism of how things get worked out. Sarah says they have to go. And Abraham is conflicted about it. Look at verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So Abraham doesn't know. What's he supposed to do in this situation? But then God intervenes. And he sides with Sarah. Verse 12, God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So just a side note here. Have you ever thought about the fact that the New Testament holds up Sarah as a model of submission in marriage? This is how the Apostle Peter put it in a passage directed towards wives submitting to their husbands. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So if Sarah is the model for submission then whatever submission means, it certainly doesn't mean not having a strong opinion and not voicing that opinion to your husband. I actually reflected on this story quite a bit this week. So Ilona and I will celebrate 25 years of marriage later this year. I mean, we won't go anywhere, but we will celebrate all the same. 25 years is a long time. And there have been lots of occasions for disagreement over the course of 25 years. And as someone who likes to be right, this passage reminds me that it is probably the case that on most of those occasions, God has sided with my wife and not with me. And then probably in most of those cases where I may have actually been in the right, I was probably in the wrong in terms of my manner of communication. In the passage I referred to earlier, Peter goes on to say this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Look, husbands, we need to take those words to heart. And I've said it, it a couple times over the course of the last several weeks that, the, that a crisis like the one we are experiencing right now reveals things. It has a way of revealing things. It reveals what it is that we trust in or where our security is. But I think the crisis has had another effect, which is the amplification of things. Those things that were true before have been amplified. And that could work in a good way. I've talked with lots of people who have said, you know, one of the benefits of this time has been the the family time, the quality family time that they've been able to spend together, that some of those bonds have been strengthened. And family closeness can grow in a time like this. But the opposite is true as well. If there were cracks and fissures in your relationships and family dynamic before, those things have been amplified. And the sad reality is that cases of domestic abuse have seen a big uptick in the midst of all this. Now, I'm not saying this is what you're experiencing, but if there is trouble, if the mess seems to be growing, you need to reach out to someone. Look, God is able to sort out the complicated mess 
of our lives. And our passage reminds us that this is true even when we're talking about the messes of our own making. Abraham and Sarah got into this whole mess through their own foolishness. Rather than waiting for God's timing, they decided let's take a shortcut to get God's blessing now. Chapter 16 tells us how the birth of Ishmael came about in the first place. And there it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, had Sarah not suggested it, had Abraham not agreed to it, they wouldn't have been in the mess they were in now. But there was a way out of it. But the way out of it was not pain-free. And as you read through the passage, you see that everyone ends up paying a cost in this passage. I mean, Abraham ends up experiencing a painful separation from Ishmael, his son. He's troubled by it. Hagar and Ishmael are left to fend for themselves in the wilderness. Who knows where they're going? And life is like that. I mean, it's a lot easier to get into trouble than to get out of it. This is truly a heartbreaking account. If you're not moved with pity for Hagar and Ishmael, you don't have a heart. But that brings us to a final emphasis from our passage, which is that God's grace is enough for everyone caught up in the mess of life. Look, if you don't walk away from this with anything else that I said, you need to walk away understanding this. Verse 14 paints a picture for us of the sad departure. It says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Bathsheba or of Beersheba. Mixing up my stories. Look, Abraham does his best. He gives them whatever provisions he can, some bread, a skin of water. But then verses 15 and 16 remind us just how inadequate those provisions were. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. She sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and wept. And the way it reads gives you the sense that they didn't get very far before the water and the food were gone. And Hagar comes to the end of herself. I mean, she does not know what to do. She thinks this is her end. She gets Ishmael to set her under a bush and in the shade. She goes off some distance and all she knows to do is to cry out and to weep. Now, Hagar may have had some designs of displacing her mistress. I mean, chapter 16 seems to indicate that she did. But from the moment she was introduced to us, she's really been the victim of circumstance. She is caught up in the mess of life. And so is Ishmael. But then verse 17 says something amazing. Verse 17 says, And God heard 
the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. The passage is going to go on to describe how God provides for Hagar and, and Ishmael. And then specifically in verse 20, it's going to say how God was with the boy. Now remember, Ishmael was sent away because he mocked the son of promise. He may have had even worse designs, but God still extends grace to him. Theologians refer to this as common grace. Jesus said it this way, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God's grace extends to all. Or when Paul was preaching in the city of Lystra to a group of people who had never heard the gospel, he said this, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God's grace is like that. There is enough of it for everyone. Everyone in this passage experiences God's grace. I mean, can can you see it? Can you see God's grace in this story? You've got these two factions. There is tension and friction between them. And for the good of everyone involved, they have to part company and go their separate ways. But notice how God's grace is able to minister simultaneously to both parties. I mean, God's grace comes to Abraham and Sarah. They're given this child they've been promised gift they waited for for 25 years. And given their ages, they had no doubt that this this was something that could have only come about by the gracious hand of God. Hagar and Ishmael could not get what they needed from Abraham, either while they lived in his camp or when he sent them away with, with some provisions. And their prospects do not look good. But when the boy Ishmael cries out, God hears him, God answers, and God provides. God meets them in the midst of their distress. God's grace is enough for everyone caught up in the complicated mess of life, regardless of how you got there. And that's true for you as well. And one of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is getting a glimpse of more than my fair share of complicated messes. And there are lots of times where I'm tempted to despair because I know that my meager resources, my well-intentioned counsel could never possibly be enough to truly help people. But I can't even begin to tell you how often I've seen God's grace be enough for what it is that people truly need. I don't know if you're in the midst of a mess right now or not. And if you are, I don't know how you got there. What I do know is that God meets us in the midst of our mess. And if you call out to God, he will hear. He will answer. So I want to pray that for all of us this morning. Lord, even as we think about this story today, 
we are reminded that life is complicated, that there are a host of things that come into our lives that cause pain and conflict and grief. And yet somehow in your grace, you are able to to meet us right in that very place. So, Lord, as we come to you today, we pray that we would be those who trust in your promises, that what you have said you will do, you will do. And would that give us the encouragement and the fuel to live in the way that we should? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.